0: The reading is taken from Matthew chapter 22 and can be found on page 990 of the Bibles. (coughs) Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he said, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, this morning we're going to look at this parable of the wedding banquet, which seems quite apt in the season of Advent. Now, I can remember the very first time that I, uh, that I had to preach on this passage. Um, it's not a day that I'm easily likely to forget. It was the day that Cathy and I had planned to announce our engagement. As it happened, the announcement came a little bit premature. It came in the sermon, rather than as planned later in the notices, because as I was trying to say the word about two minutes into the sermon, wedding reception, I caught her rather large beaming eyes looking up at me, and I dissolved into hysterics and felt (laughs) obliged to explain uncharacteristic behaviour of mine. They were... uh, They were very understanding and greeted it with a round of spontaneous applause. After all, marriage festivities, which I suppose begin with the announcement of an engagement, are a cause of great celebration. Our wedding day, if we're married, is probably the most memorable day of our lives. And even if the hopes and the dreams that we may have had then never quite worked out and the marriage didn't last, then still I think, thinking back, you would have to say that at the time, that day was highly highly memorable and enjoyable. Throughout scripture, marriage is used as a means of teaching something of the nature of God's relationship with us individually, as the Christian believer, and corporately as the church. In fact, you could see the whole of the Bible in terms of God's marriage to us. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve enjoy an intimacy with God, there is no kind of shame between them, no barriers between them, and all is fine. But then, of course, it all goes awry as human beings decided to do their own thing. And they, they put up distance between them and God. They put up barriers. And God banished them from the Garden of Eden. But then God is out to uh, woo people back to him. And through Abraham, he forms a new covenant when he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's reinforced through uh, covenants with Moses and with David. But although he wants to be the faithful bridegroom to his people and he lavishes love upon them, they, the Israelites, are a wayward bunch. Then through the prophets, God says his marriage with his people will be renewed. He uses it, uses those Hosea's kind of painful experience to communicate that. He speaks through Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And then the bridegroom comes in the person of Jesus. And ever since then, his people, the chosen ones, not so much chosen by him as they're the one, that's what he calls them, Um, although of course he does choose them, but the bridegroom has come and we in this period between his first coming and his second coming, we are being prepared as the betrothed people of God for that wedding banquet, which will happen as a climax to history when he will return. And it is referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Apostle John, writing in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, where he is recording the vision that he's had and the things he's seen and what he's heard. He says... Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear." And then John puts in kind of brackets his own comment, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then he resumes what he heard. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And that's where our passage this morning fits into that grand scheme of God's plan of salvation. It is what is celebrated at the end of this world before the next world, the new heaven and the new earth is recreated. It is a wedding reception, it is a party. So, in order to uh, understand our relationship with God, he uses marriage as one of his primary illustrations. So in order to understand this parable, we have first of all to understand something about first century wedding etiquette. Then we need to look at the context. What was Jesus wanting to say to these religious leaders in that last week of his life? and then we register what there remains for us to take away today. However, before we get started, we need, to be some, we need to be aware of something about the nature of parables. Parables usually have one dominant point. So, for example, the parable of the mustard seed, the smallest seed that there is in their uh, categorization, and yet it becomes the largest plant in the garden, the point being that the small beginnings of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus in Galilee will one day spread to the entire world. But some parables are allegorical, for example the parable of the sower, where the sower is Jesus, the seed is the word of God and the four soils are the four kinds of responses that are made to Jesus and his message. Now, fortunately for us, on that occasion, which is unique, um, Jesus gave the meaning of that allegory. Without his definitive take, it, was all, it would be all too easy to get carried away in a flight of fancy. For example, someone once wrote a book of 613 pages on the parable of the Good Samaritan. You can bet your life that that guy over allegorized it looking for significance in every minor detail. So, for example, he thinks that the two coins are representative of the two sacraments, baptism and communion. So, beware of reading too much into parables. So, in other words, just because you can make a feature in the parable correspond to some biblical truth explained elsewhere at greater length in the Bible doesn't mean that Jesus meant to make that connection in his parable. We must always look for the main point, or sometimes points, and there often is actually an unreality in in the story of the parable, which, if we press it too far, turns the thing into looking ridiculous. You've probably already realised when it was read to you that that at the wedding reception, the guests... Are the same as the bride. In verses six and seven, the story is stretched beyond real-life probability, because to refuse a king's command to a wedding would be tantamount to political insubordination, and you'd be in deep trouble for it. The treatment of the king's servants is also unlikely. But it has in mind the treatment of either the Old Testament prophets or Jesus and his disciples that week, and certainly in the early days of the church. Their city reads rather oddly in this context. I mean, does it, it doesn't mean that all the people invited to the king's wedding reception for his son that they uh, only came from one city. And yet, on the other hand, when you read about the arrangements for... The, uh, the wedding reception where the people know in advance and uh, it's just a question of letting them know during the day when the food's ready. You know, you get the picture, this is a village situation where you've only got to kind of go a few hundred yards and they stop and they get changed and they come. So you mustn't press all the little points too far, otherwise you end up with a rather ludicrous kind of um, situation. But the reference to the city, I think, is because Jesus may well have in mind the fact that um, since these Jewish leaders are going to reject him, that the people of God will move from them to a people, the rest of the world, the Gentile world. And one way in which he indicates the fact that he has kind of terminated the relationship with them is that he allows the Romans in 70 AD to burn the temple and destroy the city. I don't think it's a kind of thing stuck in after 70 AD because it says burn the parable, burn the whole city, whereas in fact the Romans actually only burnt the temple. So, as a one-time principal of Wycliffe Hall says in his commentary, if the story sometimes verges on the absurd, why not? It is, after all, a parable not a sober historical narrative. And parables are designed to convey lessons, not be mirrors of real life. Well, let's get into it. First century wedding etiquette. The guests would have all received their invitations well in advance, but the precise time of the uh, of the reception would be determined on the day itself. In the morning, they would have uh, uh, slaughtered the animals first thing, then they'd be butchered and prepared for roasting or boiling. And while that was going on, doubtless the uh, veg would be prepared and the sweet desserts baked. And when they've got a pretty good idea of when, you know, this meat's going to be ready, then servants would be sent out uh, or family members and um, call those in the village who'd been invited to come and celebrate. And the celebrations could go on for quite a few days. But everyone was local, all within walking distance of everything. Now, as an aside, the word dinner or supper in verse 4, which is the word ariston, is actually the word for the first meal of the day. Breakfast, in other words. So that, of course, set my little mind working for about three minutes earlier this week, and I thought to myself, is that the possible the origin of what we call the wedding breakfast? Well, I don't know about you, I've never been to a wedding in the morning, and I've always found calling the thing a breakfast a bit ridiculous. But it isn't anything to do with that at all, really. Apparently, according to Wikipedia, that's uh, the first instance of wedding breakfast in what they call British English, as if there's any other, um, um, <laughs> was 1838 so anyway there you are it's a project find out so the kingdom of heaven the rule of god is like a wedding banquet and the king prepares a wedding banquet for his son he sends out invitations in advance on the day when all is ready he sent his servants to let those invited know come it's all ready to enjoy but verse three they refuse to come So he sent out more servants. He elaborated on how sumptuous this reception was going to be. You know, he'd he'd shelled out pretty big time on this. Come to the wedding banquet. And then the excuses start to come in. Some were indifferent. They paid, we read verse 5, no attention and went off. They were distracted either by... uh, by their farming or by their commerce, or maybe like as in the parable of the sower, what are referred to as the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth, which choke it, making it unfruitful. Others, like these persons in the parable, uh, the parable of the tenants, which precedes it, uh, they turn violent. We read... The rest seized his servants, ill-treated them, and killed them. What's going on in the mind of the religious leaders as Jesus uh, says this? Well, the king in this parable, verse 7, is enraged at this crime and he dispenses summary justice. The murderers are killed and the city burned to the ground. And then we move on, there is the third attempt to get guests to come to his son's wedding banquet, verse 8. So this time the servants are sent out to the crossroads or street corners, junctions where people congregate, and to invite anyone you find, he says. The servants gathered a good number, both good and bad. And of course, again, you know, theologically there are no good people. We are all sinners. We're all bad. But in the New Testament, there are recognition of uh, gradations, if you like, of sinfulness. So, for example, the uh, Roman centurion Cornelius, who is the, deemed the first Gentile convert, is referred to as a, not only as a devout man and a, a, a God-fearer and a philanthropist. He's also referred to as a good man before his conversion. Language isn't being used in a precise way here in this parable. What's emphasised here, like the parable that comes uh, before in 2132, is that tax collectors... They were swindlers who collaborated with the uh, occupying forces and ripped off their own folk by adding their own take to the tax bill that the Romans were imposing. Tax collectors and prostitutes, the outcasts of Jewish first century society. Now, once you've gathered all those in, you've got a pretty full reception hall. Verse 10. Now one guy, verse 11, is out of place. He's not properly dressed for the occasion. It would seem, as we saw in Revelation 19, verse 8, that quite possibly one's uh, wedding best was defined as fine linen, bright and clean. For those off the street, maybe the king had to kit them out, as in fact oriental monarchs had done for people of God in the past. So the pharaoh, we read in Genesis 45, he kitted out, in appropriate attire for his royal court, Joseph's brothers. Xerxes kitted out Mordecai the Jew in Esther 6. But there's always a danger here, as I've said, of reading too much into some of the detail. Don Carson is probably uh, right when he he warns us. He says, uh, It is better to leave the symbolism a little vague and to say no more than that the man, though invited, did not prepare acceptably for the feast. So though the invitation is very broad, it does not follow that all who respond positively actually remain for the banquet. Some are tied, presumably so they can't get back in, and then thrown outside into the darkness where final judgment awaits. Verse 13. And then the passage ends with this rather pithy little epigram which sums up in different ways the message of both parts of the parable. Many are invited, but few are chosen. Those who went to their farm or to business had been called, but they're not designated as chosen. And even among those called in from the streets, we've seen that one, who's no doubt representative of many, who turn out in the end not to be designated chosen, despite their response to the invitation of moving gradually closer. In each case, the thought is their own. The word chosen, of course, suggests to us that their fate depended on someone else's choice, God's choice. That's what the Apostle Paul will go on to write about. But here chosen is used, as in Scripture, as a term for the messianic community of salvation, or what you might call the people of God. They're the chosen The emphasis being on the fact of membership, not on the means of attaining membership. So many, in fact, all are invited to be part of the Messianic community and to enjoy the wedding banquet, the celebration of the union of Christ and his true church. But only those who have responded to the invitation correctly or appropriately get to enjoy it. Only they are part of the true people of God, the invisible church of the chosen. Well, it's meaning for the first century audience. Jesus told this parable, as a, and a variant of it many times, there's another variant in Luke which he uses earlier on in his ministry, when things weren't quite so violent. But here it's told, in the last week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem, when those against him have moved from being disinterested or distracted to being actively hostile towards him, and they will soon be violent towards him. He's arrived in Jerusalem. He's driven the money changers out of the temple, referring to it as my house. 21.13, when, of course, all will have known who heard it that it's actually God's house. So what is he saying? 21.23, the chief priests and the elders come and question him, hoping no doubt to get an explicit claim to divinity so that they can charge him with blasphemy. But he's too smart for them. And he replies by means of three parables. You'll find them on page 990. There's the parable of the two sons. The dad asks his two sons to go and work for the day in his vineyard. The vineyard, you'll know from Isaiah 5 and elsewhere, is a picture of uh, God's people Israel. And God, the owner of the vineyard, lavishes lots of attention. He really cares for this vineyard and it seems to always disappoint him. Well, the first son said, no, he's not going to work. he going to stay in bed for the day. But then he changes his mind, and he does go and work. The second said, yes, but never did it. And Jesus asks, which did what his father wanted? And they all say the first. And then Jesus said to the religious leaders, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. For John the Baptist came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. The kingdom of God is the rule of Jesus. In Jesus, the kingdom has now come, Entry into the kingdom is by genuine repentance, a reorientation in a new direction with a life that reflects membership of that new kingdom, which is access through putting your trust in Jesus Christ, who alone enables access. He's telling them the Messiah has arrived among them, the outcasts, And obvious sinners have got it and have started entering. But they, the religious leaders, they haven't got it. Or if they're beginning to realise what Jesus is saying, they are kicking against it furiously with all their worth. And then there's the parable of the tenants. Again, tenants in a vineyard. The landowner has lavished lots of tender loving care on his beloved vineyard and he's let it out to tenants. Harvest time arrives and quite rightly he wants his share of, he wants his rent for the land they've been using. He wants his share of the fruit. The reaction was violent. The tenants seized the servants, beat one, killed another, stoned a third. More servants were sent They were treated the same way. This was a commentary on the experience of God's faithful servants in Old Testament history and is going to be the fate of his servants in New Testament history too. Finally, Jesus says, the vineyard owner sent his son and their reaction? They killed him. The religious leaders clearly realised what Jesus was now saying. They knew that he was claiming to be the one sent from God the Father, the Messiah, to see if they'd been fruitful as the people of God. Whether they had carried out God's desire for them as his chosen people to reach all the world so that the rest of the world could come and be married to God. In verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him and they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. These religious leaders know who Jesus is claiming to be, the Messiah. The feeding of the 5,000 was actually a massive, well as, well as a miracle, it was a massive great hint or sign that, uh, you know, the messianic banquet is starting to come. But they don't like this rival to their authority. They prefer their way of self-righteousness. So they plot to do him in. And they now know that Jesus knows what they're up to. And Jesus even gets them to provide their own self-condemning response. Verse 41, the owner of the vineyard will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And the vineyard will be rented out to others. He's led them through this parable. And they realize what he's claiming. And we're not surprised when in verse 43 Jesus spells it out. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And just to make sure they got the message, Jesus moves from the message of God the vineyard owner and his chosen people to God the Father, the Messianic banquet, and his chosen bride. And the event will be the climax of all creation. And these religious leaders who have received an invitation but decided not to come, but instead are going to kill the bridegroom. And the ascription chosen people will move from the Jewish nation to the Christian church which will include Jewish converts, and those who have so forcibly rejected Jesus will get what they want, nothing to do with him. But that news is the news of exclusion from the presence of God, a removal from the light into outer darkness. Instead of the joy of celebration, it will be fear and terror of an eternity of regret. That's what the parable was conveying to them. They'd been contemptuous of the grace of God. They'd taken him for granted and drifted well away. Now what's left for us to take away this Advent? Dr John Hall is the Dean of Westminster Abbey. In an interview the other day, he reminds us that the themes of Advent are death, judgment, heaven and hell. He said... A lot of people in church have completely abandoned the idea of hell. But I can't do that. There's a popular belief that it'll be all right. What we're missing, perhaps, is a sense of humanity under judgment, he's quoted as saying. Epicurus, the Greek pleasure-loving philosopher, said long ago, what men fear is not that death is annihilation, but that it's not. And William Butler Yeats in his poem Death catches that feeling precisely. Nor dread nor hope attend a dying animal. A man awaits his end, dreading and hoping all. So what does this parable have to say to us? What is there to take away? Well, it depends who we are. If, like those religious leaders, we have grown contemptuous of God's grace, then we're condemned. If we receive the invitation to eternal life and we're either indifferent, preoccupied with other things which may on their own be important, but are not as important as Christ, then we'll never make it to the wedding reception at the end of time. And if, as may be hinted, we arrive to face Christ without his robe of righteousness to replace and cover our sins, we won't make it if we're relying upon our own good works. So the invitation to us is all of grace. It is a great big freebie, and yet it costs us our lives, our lives surrendered to him, and about turned to be conformed to be like him. And that progressive conformity, which is not perfection, is evidence of a genuine transformation taking place, a reassurance that we've made a genuine profession, that Christ has been at work in us, that we're on track for that great celebration at the end of time, not simply as guests, but as those who will marry Christ forever. Now, of course, you may be here out of the blue, And you may have spent your life watching Newsnight or something, and you've never heard anything said like this whatsoever. And you may be, even like the Apostle Paul was at first, raging against this. Well, there's hope. Some of these people who actually that week met together in their council, and their council conspired to get Jesus executed by the Romans. Some of of them didn't go along with the majority. But some of those who did, later, having fought against this Christ, gave in to him, surrendered their life to him. They saw it all made sense. There's no need to struggle on alone. You're not meant to.